Good afternoon and welcome to Overtime. My name is Lynn Marshke and I'll be your host for this program. And during the course of Overtime, you will meet a lot of world-class athletes who will impart stories to us, telling of not only their careers, but also their lives once their careers are over and how they not only reinvented and rediscovered themselves, but how they became productive citizens in many different fields besides just athletics. Welcome, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the program. I am very honored today to have as my guest an incredible man who has accomplished so much in his career, Mr. Willie Banks. What can you say about a man who sets a world record at the age of 65. Willie Banks did, and you know what? He's not done yet. Willie was born in San Diego, California on the Travis Air Force Base. His first level of accomplishment was becoming an Eagle Scout. And those of you who have young men in scouting know how difficult that is to become a scout. He was a great college athlete at UCLA. And also, while he was there, not only did he compete in sports, but he earned his BA and JD as well. He was an NCAA championships second place finisher in 1977 and 78. He qualified for the U.S. Olympic team in 1980. But in 1980, as we all well know, the, our teams were not allowed to compete because of a political boycott. He qualified again for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, which for him was a home meet because it's right in his backyard. He also went on to compete in Seoul, Korea in the 1988 games. He became a record holder in the triple jump in 1981. And the most remarkable thing to me, anyway, about an athlete is longevity, and Willie Banks has competed or did compete in his field for over 18 years. And I mean not just compete, but at a high level. From 1975 until 1992, Willie was amongst the top Olympic athletes in his specialty in the entire world. A remarkable achievement. Among the accolades that have been afforded to this gentleman are the 1985 Track and Field News and U.S. Olympic Committee Athlete of the Year, the Congressional Gold Medal Award, the Jesse Owens Award. He's a member of the USA National Track and Field Hall of Fame and became, as I said, a world record holder in the triple jump at the age of 65. It is my pleasure to introduce Willie Banks. Hi, Lynn. Thank you very much for that introduction. Boy, I sound like somebody. You, you are somebody, Willie. <laughs> Willie, I want to start with your young life in California, I guess around the San Diego area. What sports did you play as a young man? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I just want to make a, one correction here. I was born at Travis Air Force Base, but that's in Northern California. But I spent maybe a year, a year and a half there. So when I was a year and a half years old, we moved Diego, to Southern yes. California, San yeah, Diego, no, San Diego, to... Oceanside, Carlsbad. Those are my that's my hometown, really. And I just want so, to mention that you were born at Travis, which is pretty unique in itself. Yeah, and exactly. You moved, and you moved to, to Southern California where you spent most of your life and your career. Exactly. I love it here. So anyway, as a young man, yep. becoming, you know, like all of us, he wanted to play sports. Yeah. What were the things that stood at you? What did you want to do the most? What did you want to play the most? Well, first of all, the reason why I got in sports is because uh, a very smart psychiatrist, psychologist at the elementary school I went to had, had told my parents that I needed to, to get involved in sports. Uh, these days, you probably would have called it uh, 
um, ADD, but at the time I was so hyperactive. I was running around. There were times when I'd be crying because, you know, I'd be like, Hey, pick me, pick me to my teacher. And when she didn't pick me, I'd just start crying. Like they didn't know what was wrong with me. So after a, ba- a battery of tests and whatnot, they finally decided that, well, maybe if you put him in sports, it would sap that energy up. So that's what my parents did. Now they didn't have a lot of money, but my father was a Marine. And so on the Marine Corps base, just about everything was free or or very inexpensive to do. So I did uh, just about everything. They just, whatever was there, they threw me into it. I did horseback riding, baseball, tennis, golf, uh, you name it, you know, swimming, everything. They just got me. And, and it did. It, it calmed me down. It, it, it took away all of that excess energy. And I felt much better in school. I did better in school. And and, um, you know, physically I felt better. So, so what, what I really like, I really loved everything. I just wanted to be with my friends and run around. So that's, that's yeah, it. Well, that that was it. You can do. Okay. So what point did you decide the track and field was going to be your specialty? Well, I think that was junior high when we were in PE, one of the teachers brought, uh, one of the high school high jumpers down to uh, talk to us about what track and field was all about. And his name was Jerry Culp. And Jerry uh, was explaining what he does and how high he jumped and he put the bar up and I was like, that's impossible. So I wanted to see just how good he was. I went to the high school to watch him jump. And you know, after everyone had gone out at about six, two, I thought, well, what happened to Jerry? And I turned and looked as the judge was walking over to this guy lying on the ground with, with his hoodie on, and he took his hoodie off. It was Jerry. He said something to the, uh, the official, and then walked over to the high jump, and without even taking off his sweats, he easily jumped over 6'2". And I knew at that point, I wanted to be that guy. I want to be that cool where everybody else is out, and I walk up. And I jump over the bar, you know. So that's what got me so excited about track. So when did you, now, when did you pick a specialty? When did you pick something you wanted to really work on? So that was my junior year in high school. Um, I was already a high jumper, a long jumper, a hurdler, and a sprinter. And they introduced the triple jump to California in 1973 when I was a junior in high school. And you know, everybody had to try it. So I tried it and I was pretty good at it. So um, uh, coach said, well, you're, you're good enough. You'll make the team as a triple jumper as well. But I'd have to give up something. Well, I went and I was in history class and the teacher asked me, so what do you do? And I said, well, I do the triple jump and I'm the best, you know, in the school. And he looked at me, he said, hey, well, I know a little bit about that. And I and, you know, maybe I can come out and help you. And I looked at him like, uh, maybe you didn't hear me. I am the best in the school. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 seriously. I was a 1942, 43, and 44 NC2A champion, and I was one of the best in the nation. And I was like, well, okay, <laughs> you can come help me. So he came out, and he actually showed me how to do it the correct way. And from that time on, I was I won the uh, the state championship twice in a row, and I was defeated only once in the whole my whole career in high school. Wow! Tell us a little bit about UCLA. You then moved on to UCLA, and yes, not, not only to be an athlete, and of course we all know UCLA has a great history of track and field athletes, and you also were an incredible student as well. Um, you really, really worked hard at your studies, and but you know track became a kind of backbone for your overall experience at UCLA, including the NCAA championships where you excelled. Yes, I I went to UCLA because of that that history of track and field. I thought, man, I want to be a part of that. And it was it was interesting because my very first year uh, in the when I was doing when I was training before we got into the competitions, I had a great coach, by the way. His name was Tom Tellez. Uh, his name is Tom Tellez, but anyway, he was 
he was actually uh, eventually became uh, Carl Lewis's coach. But before Carl Lewis, he was my coach and he he helped me to improve uh, tremendously. And so he also asked me to do the long jump and I did that. And I guess I became famous in Los Angeles because there was a big dual meet between UCLA and another school in the, the ghetto called USC. <laughs> and we spoken like, spoken like a true Trojan. There you go. Or Bruin. 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 <laughs> so, so that meet came and it was like a big, big meet because, you know, there were so many great athletes there and it came down to the last event, which was a triple jump. And I won it and set a national record uh, to win as a freshman. And so from and it was on television, we had 15,000 people in the stands and then another 2000 to 3000 wrapped around the, 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 the fences. That's how big the meat was. And that kind of established me as a, a, a name, actually, in Los Angeles. So that got me started. And uh, I eventually had some other great coaches like. Um, uh, I mean, you just name it. I had some fantastic coaches that that helped me be the best, like Jim Kiefer and and um, uh, my coach Randy Huntington and others. So, yeah, I was very very fortunate. From there, you kind of developed not only into a Los Angeles legend, but also you went on to, to qualify for the 1980 U.S. Olympic team. Now, as we all know, that poor team was denied the opportunity to go to Moscow because of politics. Yeah. As a member of that team, after working so hard to qualify for a lifelong dream, an incredible American dream, what did it feel like to have that rug pulled out from your feet? What did it feel like for them to tell you that you could no longer compete in those Olympics. Well, Lynn, you really know how to go for the juggler, don't you? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> that was a very, very difficult time for me. Um, you know, when you train for years and years, only to be stopped by politics, I, I can't express how difficult the time that was. Not only because, you know, I made the team, but I barely missed the team in 1976 by one inch. I came in fourth. I would have, I was an alternate. So I promised myself because look, my parents went in 76 to the Olympic games thinking I was going to go. So my parents, my, my brothers and sisters all went to Montreal. I was the only one who sat home. And I knew that in 1980, I was going to make that team. And I did. I was, I beat everybody by a foot yet. I wasn't going again. So that hurt me tremendously. And But it's a little bit bittersweet because after that, I pledged to myself that I would get involved in sports politics. And I did. And I fought hard to end this whole thing about amateur versus uh, pro. I, I fought hard to prevent uh, us from, from boycotting Olympic Games. And, and would you believe it? Even today, they're still talking about boycotting the Beijing Olympic Games. I just throw my hands up like, what is wrong with people? Sad. It's why would you hold hostage your own athletes from competing? They didn't do that with Jesse Owens when they went to Berlin. And look what he did. He changed history with his successes, not keeping holding him back. So... It just upsets me that people can be so ignorant not to understand the benefit of the Olympic game. Yeah, it may have been a mistake to send it to Beijing, but you know they paid for it. They're paying for it. And we're going to go there and we're going to show them just how good freedom feels. Exactly. And that, I think, is the more important uh, sure part of the Olympic movement. It I'm sure sorry, is. but I had to say that. No, please. Um, and I know it was something that, you know, basically I'm sure you felt strongly about because, you know what, a lot of times we haven't heard from athletes on that 1980 team. 
And it just had to have been the most, as you said, bittersweet feeling to have worked so hard and yet not been able to accomplish your ultimate goal. But the good thing was that in 1984, you were able to compete on the team in L.A. And for you, it's, it was a hometown meet. So yeah. how, how much fun was that? I had a blast up until I got injured and was only able to take six. But then afterwards, I was able to go and uh, I was a radio commentator, a color commentator, color commentator for track and field. And I got to sit and watch everybody compete. And it was a wonderful. I don't know if you were able to go, but I was, it was there. A wonderful I was Olympic there. Games. And there was so much new technology. I spent half my time playing with emails. You know, they <laughs> just introduced it. And I was like, this fits me like a glove the so one thing I did a lot of that Willie was in LA and I went to so many different you know venues the traffic was the best it ever was oh Everybody and we it could drive good. everywhere and so. you could actually breathe the air <laughs> so what about Seoul in 1988 what was your experience there Oh, Seoul was was pretty interesting you know it was a cultural shock for some of us and so uh, some of us didn't do as well as we could have. And but, you know, it was it was good because we were there and we did well. You know, our Olympic team did well. Again, I got injured, so I wasn't able to do as well as I wanted to. But, but you went over there, right? You I was over. there. I was yeah. there. I was team captain. National experience, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And being the team captain and being able to go and 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 represent the country was just awesome. Now, one of the things about Willie that people may not know is that throughout his career, he has always evolved and developed and demonstrated a very flamboyant kind of demeanor when he's on the track. I mean, not only smiling, but laughing and clapping to the point where people looked at him and said, wow, who is that guy? Look at that guy. Look at the spirit. Look at the fun he's having. How did you develop that flamboyance? Where did it come from? Oh, my gosh. Like I said, early on, I've always been kind of wild and crazy. You know, the, I had excess energy at all times. So I always have to get that out. And so I did that through music, dancing, and exercise. I just, I just loved it. And they did me a favor. Sony did me a huge favor. They created the Walkman. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I've got a thing. I can walk around with my music all day long and I can train with it. So I used to play my music and dance and stretch and, and then go jump. And, you know, for me, jumping was, I don't know, it was like, it was like um, heaven. It was, that's what I wanted to do was jump. And so to be able to go out and jump and it was a, kind of a living for me holy i was too blessed i thought it's at one time you know at some time they're gonna take this away from me so i better take advantage of it and you oh. know speaking of how the whole flamboyance came to kind of a head it wasn't a head but it 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 it, it, it took me to a point where i jumped off into fame internationally and it had to do with the fact that i did have the walkman and the music and and, there, you know, I had just set a national record, as you said, in 1981 in the triple jump. And what we did was we would go over to Europe and we'd get paid to compete in different competitions. So I actually thought, oh, here it is. Now I'm a, I'm a national record holder. I have the number one athlete in, in the triple jump in the world. I'm about to get paid. <laughs> so I went over <laughs> thinking, I'm going to get a lot of money. Only had one competition and i wondered why so i went over to the meet all the meat organizers and i said why and the one guy who had the most he said listen nobody's coming to my meet to see you jump and if they're not coming to the meet i'm not getting paid so why would i pay you to come and that hit me it was like oh he's right nobody cares about me so I went to the meet that day, that one meet that I had, and I, I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna just gonna have fun. Guys, I have not nothing else to lose. So I went out there and I just 
started dancing and, and enjoying myself. I didn't care about the crowd. I wanted to have fun. Every time I went down, I did well. The very first time, there was five drunk guys in the stadium. They were, they were you know, because you can drink in Europe, right? And some of these stadiums. Well, the Olympic Stadium in Stockholm, you could get plastered. And they did. And I usually start out by clapping my hands three times, shaking my fist three times, and then rolling, right? So I clapped my hands three times. And some five guys who had been drunk, they clapped their hands three times. And I looked over at them like, why are you mocking me? And they laughed. And I go, okay, forget it. I clapped my hands three times. They clapped their hands three times. I shook my fist and ran down and jumped pretty good. Well, this went, every time I got up, more and more people joined in until at the end, everybody in the stadium was clapping to, to my fist shaking. Boom, boom. It was unbelievable. I, I went out and I jumped uh uh, close to my 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 national record, close to the year, and I broke the European record. It was pandemonium. People came out of the stands. They put me on the shoulders, gave me a microphone. Just the big mistake that you made, and you know, I just didn't even know what I said. I just went on and on and on. Anyway, after that, I I was famous everywhere in the world because they watched it, and every time they wanted to be involved in track and field. They wanted to see me do well. So everywhere I went, I had a home court advantage. It was weird, but I loved it. And it was like I was a rock star. I'd walk out the minute I come through the tunnel into, say, Berlin Stadium, which held 50 to 60,000 people. They would just go boom, boom. And I was like, this is unbelievable. A guy, a little guy from Oceanside, a little skinny guy from Oceanside with this much fame is just out of control. Well, you know what? And it endures. People still remember it to this very day. Yeah, thank you so, so much, man. It's, it's wonderful that somebody could really take that energy and that exuberance and translate it, not only to sport, but also to the people who are watching the sports. Yeah. It kind of creates a wonderful interaction between you, spectators, and what you were looking to achieve. So it was it was something that basically, you know, stayed with you and is with you even to this very day. Yeah. So, but Willie, why, when did you decide that, you know what, my career, and as I mentioned before, one of the most remarkable things about Willie is that he competed at a high level for almost 18 years, which was virtually unheard of in track and field. 18 years. At what point did you feel like things are starting to wind down, that you know my career as a competitor is kind of coming to a close and perhaps I should start thinking about other things in life? So the one good thing about my parents, not, I'm sorry, not the one good thing, I had great parents, and maybe I should say it this way. I was blessed from birth, and I'm still being blessed. It's unbelievable some of the things that have happened to me because of blessings that, that even today I'm benefiting from. First of all, my parents instilled upon me that it's more important to have an education than it is to be in sport. Secondly, they supported me wholeheartedly and believed in me wholeheartedly. And thirdly, I trusted them and loved them and, and, and accepted everything that they wanted to give me. So that was a blessing for me. But as, as I improved and as I got better, and then it seemed like things started to fall apart. Now, when I say fall apart, I mean physically, I was doing things that perhaps my body wasn't ready to do. So I jumped over, I mean, I jumped very far in 1988, and it was, no one had ever jumped that far. It was, it was unbelievable, but it was wind-aided. And so it wasn't counting as world record, but it was, un, you know, it, it, it was very good jump. So what I'm trying to say is that, that right after that, 
my Achilles tendon just stretched so far that I could barely walk the next day. And um, from that time on, I thought, you know, I'm glad I went to law school. I'm glad I I'm glad I have a great network because I don't think I can go much further on uh, these legs. And so I turned to um, learning and I thought to myself, you know what? I've traveled the world, but I've never lived anywhere else. So I had to make a decision on what to do because I knew I was going to have to retire. So I thought, you know what I'll do is I will, I'll go live somewhere else for maybe six months. And I moved to Japan and I spent three years there. After thinking I was going for six months, I spent three years and could have gone and lived there for probably the rest of my life. But I came back to the United States because I had some great job offers uh, working in uh, sport. And so I did that. But it, the, the idea of retiring came, I think, at that time where I was, um, I was in a situation where I knew I wasn't going to be able to jump as far. And even though I had three surgeries, it wasn't getting any better. You know, back then they didn't have what they have now. I probably could have kept jumping if they had the types of surgeries that they have now. But at the time I didn't. But again, I've started preparing when I was very young. I never wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be a politician. <laughs> I don't know why, but I wanted to be in government. And so that's you've got the person that's out. where I started. Yeah. Well, thank you, but I don't have that. I don't have that lying capability. So. <laughs> so anyway, so you you came to this decision about moving on and basically taking not only the education you had but also the education of life that you know, track and field had afforded you. And you decided to become a businessman. Right. You decided to go into some business fields. Describe those fields. Describe what it was that you started to create and the process of creation. Well, again, blessings, right? Things come along. Well, I was, uh, I was actually in Japan and I got an offer to go to Los Angeles and work on the 1994 World Cup of Soccer. Now, I had no idea about soccer, right? I was like, I have no clue. But you started off the biggest event of its kind. Exactly. I couldn't believe it. What a blessing, right? They just called me from Japan and said, hey, I got a job for you. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went and did that, and, and it was unbelievable. After that, they called me to Atlanta, and I, I was the athlete services uh, director for Atlanta, and... And after that, I joined with a guy and we formed our own company uh, called Banco. And we went and we bid for the Olympic Games for different cities like Stockholm and, and Osaka. Now, they didn't win, but I had great experiences from that. I learned the names and had relationships with International Olympic Committee uh, 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 representatives. And I learned, you know, I knew I started to get a great network and then. I actually uh, moving to, 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 you know, living, having lived in Japan, I learned a lot of Japanese. So I started a business in Japan and I've been doing that business for the last 27, 28 years. Yeah. And so basically, though, always in the back of your mind, you had it that you wanted to become active or remain active with track and field. Yeah. Your sport, the future of the sport, where it was headed to, what was going to be the best thing for the athletes, the training facilities, the politics of them becoming young Olympians in different phases of their life. I mean, so that was something that really drove you for a long time, correct? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I know as I when, while I was an athlete, I benefited from the, the kindness and the assistance of people involved in track and field. It, it gave me a firm uh, base to work and, and to become a good citizen. And I thought, you know what? It's time to pass it forward. So I got involved and I've been trying to help with wh whatever I can. And, and, and I helped to form 
the uh, United States Track and Field Foundation. And uh, I helped to form the Alumni Association for USA Track and Field, along with Mike Conley. And I've always tried to do something that would help athletes, but also to help track and field. Uh, it's, it, it is my, it's what has given me everything that I have. I, even my wife and kids, everything came from track and field. So I'm a, I'm a very fortunate and blessed person. Now, now tell us, I mean, obviously you're still competing. You're still out there. Yeah. You're still doing things yeah. about your, not only yourself, but also the game that you loved and, and the specialty that you really, 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 you know, became accomplished in. So why did you decide that all of a sudden, you know, say in your quote unquote golden years, you're still going to be a world class athlete? So happenstance, um, I was coaching athletes, you know, high school athletes and, and doing that, I would, uh, you know, show them the techniques sometimes, uh, literally just get out there and show them how to do it. And, uh, one day I went up to a competition in Long Beach and I was helping by raking the pit for everybody. You know, I'd rake the pit because, uh, you know, I'd spent, 20 some odd years raking pits. And so I thought I can do this. And so I was raking a pit. And one day um, one guy came down and he jumped into the pit. You know, he did the triple jump and he landed and he, we measured and he was like, yes, yes. And I was like, why is this old guy all excited and happy? <laughs> and he said, I set the world record in the triple jump for my age. And I said, well, how old are you? And he said, 45. And I said, wait, I'm 45. Is that all I have to do? <laughs> so I went to Japan. I had a, a meeting in Japan. So I went to Japan and for about a week. And I, all I had was tofu because I knew if I shed some weight, I could jump. And I came back. I found the quickest meet I could find. It was in San Diego. And I broke the world record. I felt I felt bad for the guy, right? But he should he should not have been excited. At the like age of 45 still. At yeah. The at the age of 45. But, you know, that's what got me started. And every five years, there's a new category, right? And so every five years, I'm a, I'm, I'm the young guy. Yeah. And I get to jump and break records. And so that's what I do. I, I just love it. So most people look at age and they go, oh, man, I'm getting older. Me, I'm looking at age like only three more years, only two more years, only one more year before I'm back. New opportunities. Tell yeah. us a little bit about now Tokyo. Tokyo was where you broke the current world record for the age 65, correct? Nope. That was San Diego. Oh, it was San Diego. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Okay. No, it was now, just a competition. Did you go to Tokyo last year? I, I went to Tokyo in 2020. I just got back uh, when, in, you know, after the Olympic Games. I went to the Olympic Games. Okay. And but what that was as a world athletics, which is track and field, um, council member. I was elected to the International Federation of Track and Field, which is called World Athletics. And so as one of the leaders, I had to go to be an official at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. What was it like over in Tokyo? I mean, no fans. Wow. I mean, obviously there were a lot of restrictions on movement. You couldn't really enjoy the culture of Japan. It was very, very restrictive. How, you know, what was it like, especially for the athletes? Well, for me, you know, I knew the culture, I knew the language, uh, so I could get around easy. This was totally right. Like you've never seen before. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, it, it was really surreal to be in a stadium of the best athletes in the world, and and no one else was there. It was yeah. really surreal. It's kind of like being at the Grand Canyon and you're the only one there, right? So it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. So that was weird, but the, the people working on the games, the Japanese people working around the games, they, they wanted to do a good job. They wanted everybody to understand that, hey, being safe is important. Having fun is important. 
doing well is important. And I think that that came across. I think everyone enjoyed themselves, even though they couldn't enjoy the typical, you know, the Tokyo, the city, the culture of Japan. Uh, unlike myself, who, you know, I, I spend every year there. You know, it's, it's like my second home. You, you had seen it in one phase, and now yeah. you're seeing it in a totally different phase. Absolutely. Your perspective on it was, was, all, was very complete and very unique in that very few had seen both aspects like you had. Exactly. Now, now what's next for Willie Banks? What is Willie Banks going to do? Willie Banks, you know, has developed a company, a marketing company. If you want to tell us a little bit about that and about what that, you know, what that's all about, how that got going. Um, but I mean, the main question I have now is, you know, you've seemingly done all you can in track and field, which is probably not true because obviously you want to do more and more and more. What's next for Willie Banks? Well, I'm going to answer the first, the, 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 that last little piece you said there about I've obviously done everything I can in track and field. I think there's a whole lot more to go, but I just recently, actually yesterday, World Athletics approved a eight-year plan for the growth of track and field, and I was made chair of that plan. So essentially, I I came to the sport wanting to change the sport, and they gave me the opportunity, and they agreed to do the plan that we put together. So I was ecstatic. But then I thought to myself, you know what? A plan is like a symphony. You know, a symphony, you can write a symphony, but if no one plays it, is it really music? So I thought, I've got this plan, but if no one does anything about it, is it really a plan? So now it's I'm going to make it my responsibility to make sure that the plan is implemented implemented amongst the 214 uh, member federations of athletics. That's 214 places in the world where we have a federation for track and field. And I am going to push hard to make sure that over the next eight years, this plan gets adopted in every one of the member federations and that they follow the plan so that we will grow our sport and make the world fitter and healthier. And that's the goal. So what do you think the future is for Olympic athletics? Do you think it's going to be bigger, brighter? Do you think that politics will intervene too much as we've both talked about? Do you think that basically, you know, the politicians will leave it alone and the games will, it'll grow. I mean, it's, it's now, you know, it's been complicated. Now we're having Olympiads every two years because of COVID as opposed to every four years. So, you know what? The young athletes coming up, a young athlete listening to you today. I mean, do you think that their future, and obviously it looks at, I see from your smile, that you think that their future is brighter than it's ever been before. And I absolutely think that, Lynn. I mean, you have to just, you can just go outside anywhere in this world and you'll watch kids running, jumping, throwing, riding, uh, swimming, gymnastics. It's growing. We just need to keep focused. The problem is old people in politics want to play politics and they can't do anything to rich uh companies, because if you really want to do something, I mean, think about it. If you really wanted to do something to Beijing, you'd say, swoop, no more money for you. And that would end that, right? But the key is we can't really do anything because the, the economics are so much tied into everything we do. So well, it's not so much politics as it is economics. Yeah. But when you withhold a, you know, 300 athletes from competing in a winter game. What have you accomplished? Look at the 524 athletes that you held out of, of um, Moscow in 1980. Most of the people alive right now don't even remember that. Yeah. Had no, it, it had no effect. What effect did it have? What did Carter do? 
he basically punted. Well, I can't, I can't bomb them. I can't stop people from trading with them. I got it. I'll embarrass them. Yeah. Seriously. It really didn't. The people that hurt well, the most. Well, think about it. In 1984, they did the reverse to us. Exactly. They and imagine how big. We set more records. We won more medals. We had the biggest Olympic Games of all times. The Olympic Games made more money than ever. So it not only did it in, not embarrass the United States, it made it the Olympic Games bigger stronger and better than ever before because our competitors didn't show holy mackerel that same will... thing this time we have to do we have to be there so the athletes can show that freedom is better than trying to tamp down people's desire to be free amen amen and nothing more profound in this world now willie Going forward, uh, give give some advice to somebody who basically has worked their whole life in a particular field, at a particular career, it's something that they've done, they've loved, and now they're coming to a point where, you know what, it's time for a change. It's time to kind of reinvent, rediscover, and to grow. For someone who's looking to do that, looking around for something to do, um, taking you as an example, and you've been doing it your entire life, what advice would you give to them? Oh, my gosh. The very first advice I would say to them is, what is it that you really love to do? And then think about the three things that you have control over. You have control over your time, you have control over your talent, and you have control over your treasure. And then if you know what you love to do, then take those three things that you have control over and mold them into what you love to do. Look, I love music and I love to dance and I love athletics. What did I do? I started going to Zumba classes. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of women that are in there, very few men, but I love it because I'm dancing. I'm listening to great music. And I'm just doing exercise. I mean, I don't, I don't run anymore. I dance, but I feel better than I've ever felt before. I could still jump because of Zumba. It's a dance fitness class, right, with other people. And it's just the most fun thing you can ever do. So find that one thing. Take your three, the three things that you have your time, your talent, your treasure, and mold it into that. And I think the other thing that is critical is to let yourself grow. The problem is some people, they sit. They don't grow. You can't. It's like not planting a seed. It's like walking over the dirt and not planting a seed. So, for instance, I when I stopped doing track and field as an athlete, I started coaching. And that's my idea of planting seeds, because later on, when I go back to those athletes, they may not be athletes, but they come back to me and they say, hey, coach, because of you, I'm an attorney now. Yep. Hey, coach, doctor. because of you, I'm an engineer. I'm a doctor. Hey, coach, I have my own window washing business. I have my own trucking business. That is the seeds that I planted. And look at so many genius engineers, doctors, lawyers, uh, truck drivers who could go and plant other seeds. How many, you know, we have this trucking problem right now. And if these truck drivers would have planted the seeds, would have gotten more women into it, where there's only 6% of women are truck drivers, but if we would have taught women how to drive a truck, we wouldn't have this problem. So we need to plant the seeds as we go along doing the thing that we know and love. Great answer. Great answer. Talk to me a little bit about the foundations you support. The Leukemia oh and Lymphomia Foundation. Give us a little give us a little advice about some of the obviously you're, you're a, a humanitarian. You spend a lot of your time helping others, doing great deeds within the fields. Tell us a little bit about some of the foundations you really, really are involved in. 
Well, as I told you before, I'm a blessed man and I am never going to forget that. And I pray every day and I, and I, and I just, I love this world. I love my life. But more than that, I think it's always important to give back. It, you can, again, you can give back your time, you can give back in your talent, or you can give back in your treasure, right? And the, the things, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is an awesome group, and they're doing good deeds all the time. Now, I have a personal uh, relationship because my, my sister, a year older than me, passed away a couple of years ago, and I really wanted to honor her. She died of leukemia. And so I thought I would do whatever I could. And so I helped raise $100,000 just to, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a month to make sure that she and my, my nephew were remembered. And I continue to try and support that organization for the great job they're doing to, to end the scourge of, of, of cancer, blood cancer. So that's that's why I'm involved in it. And I think anyone who has this opportunity should be. And then I owe a, a, a unique debt to sport. And so I helped to found uh, and support the Olympians for Olympians uh, Relief Fund. And basically what that is, is Olympians give to a fund. And that fund then... Uh, help support Olympians in need. So when we had the floods, there were several Olympians who lost their homes. We try and give them a little bit of money to show them that we care and that they're a part of the family. We can't solve problems with money, but we can at least send them something to let them know that their family of Olympians and Paralympians are behind them and want to help and support them. Great. And then I also am involved in USA Track and Field Foundation. I helped found that as well. And that specializes in helping young athletes to develop. And it also awards uh, Olympic, Olympic uh, level and world-class athletes with their success. It helps fund their uh, training and it helps uh, get them to meets and it we also offer uh, scholarships and and then grants just giving money to athletes to help them uh, be better athletes so that we think is important because the more we can we can make their life easier the better they will be able to compete and represent our country in the way that we we all uh, love. Now, you're also involved with World Record Camps. Tell us a little something about that. Well, World Record Camps is something I started because I had been doing so many camps with so many great athletes like like Dick Fosbury and... Um, Fosbury Flop. I, you know him, yeah, the, the Fosbury <laughs> Flop. And uh, I thought, you know what, I, I should do something. But I didn't want to just coach kids I wanted to coach coaches as well. And the best way I thought I could do that is to invite the kids to come and then invite their coaches to watch the Olympians coach their kids. And then they can take away, they can take back with them the lessons that we're coaching the kids and continue. Because we only get to see them, what, once a weekend in a year? Whereas they will see them month after month and they can remember and coach the things that are necessary to make them better. So I thought that would be the greatest thing. And, and it's lasted for the last nine years. And it, even through uh, COVID, we've managed to do a couple of camps. So that was really fun. And it okay. continues to be fun for me. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, you've done so much. We've covered a lot today. Um, if you had a few parting words for our, for our audience about yourself, your life, your goals, um, getting a little bit older, you know, and again, reinvention, rediscovering new avenues of purpose. What would you say to them? I think you've said well, a lot, but a parting thought. So I truly believe that 
my age has made me even better. And the reason I say that is because when you're young, you're just trying to get it for you. You're just trying to, you're making money and you're trying to make it, right? But then I've gotten to a place where I visit a financial planner and he said, you know, you're in great shape. Just enjoy your life. And I thought, what? <laughs> no, I've always had a great time, but you know, it's like taking this relief off you and you just go and just enjoy the fruits of all that labor over the last 50, 60, whatever years and enjoy other people, enjoy planting seeds and, um, you know, do what you love to do. So there's no, there's no trick to this. The only thing there is, is for you to find what you love to do and do it. Now, I love the fact that we're doing this, uh, this podcast because the more we spread the word, I think the better people will understand that when we say the golden years, it truly is golden because we're, we're making our lives now. This is the start of the new life. And the old life was all about getting, getting, getting. Now this new life is about being awarded. And I love to be rewarded. Amen. Willie, you've said it so beautifully. You've been an incredible guest today. We've covered a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for showing us that over time is probably the best time of our life. So um, good luck in everything that you're going to be doing and all of your future endeavors. And we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Well, it's been a pleasure to be a part of Vitality, uh, uh, Vitalcy. It's been a pleasure to be a part of Vitalcy. I hope you can cut that mistake up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I really, really had a great time. Thank you so much, Lynn. Great. Lynn Marshke for Overtime, brought to you by Vitalcy. Thank you very much for watching. We hope to see you again real soon with another guest. Have a good night.